This episode is sponsored by Boomi. If you're anything like us and you care about conscious consumerism, you'll love the range of products that Boomi has on offer. Not only are all their products ethically made in fair trade certified factories, but they also only use premium organic cotton, which means no harmful pesticides were used, no toxic dyes, and there's no child or exploitative labour involved. With the weather cooling down here in Australia, Boomi's beautiful soft and warm waffle weaved blankets are the perfect lightweight but cosy addition to layering your bed on those chilly nights. We've certainly been using ours quite a bit lately. To learn more about Boomi and their full range, visit boomi.com.au. That's B-H-U-M-I.com.au. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 62 of the Minimalist Vegan Podcast. Hello, my name is Michael and I'm joined by my wife, Marsha. Hi. And on this show, we explore what it means to live with less stuff and more compassion. And right in line with our theme is we're going to be talking about the ethics of beekeeping, honey, that whole industry in a very interesting two-part series, which we're excited to get into. Um, but before we do that, we just wanted to give you some personal updates, what we've been up to, uh, before we get into some pretty pretty heavy content. So, any uh, any updates, Marsha? So, yeah, we have been working on some new, I guess, I guess I wouldn't call them hacks, but, you know, new ways of being productive and to streamline certain things in our lives. So, Michael introduced Notion, um, which is like an productivity app what would yeah. you call it yeah i'd say it's like a like a it's hard to describe it's hard mm. to put it in a in a box but i'd say productivity app would be like it does a lot it. of different things yeah. so you can do a lot of personal things in there you can track a lot of things you can create to-do lists you can journal you can add spreadsheets yeah so you think of it like a task manager meets a database meets a spreadsheet meets google docs and it's all sort of lumped together under all one roof one. and then it like kind of operates like a website <laughs> and you can you know yeah. you can add whatever you want you can add images like it's very easy Yep. to use but in saying that we did get a template which made it much much easier rather than starting from scratch yeah. so that was really helpful it it is like it can be very overwhelming and like if it's like so customizable in fact you need to customize it from scratch which makes it very overwhelming so um but that's what we wanted we wanted something that was a blank canvas and we weren't quite happy trying to fit all the moving parts in our life including work and goals and habit tracking and financials and everything that we do in one place it was just all over the place in different apps so we wanted one place to put it um but with that it requires a bit of work and we spent like a good week nerding out on youtube we even bought a course um on notion just so we can get this girl's uh templates um if you're interested we can link to that in the show notes as well but that's probably been the most valuable part of the course it's just we like the aesthetic of how she set up her notion dashboard so um, and again, it's very customizable, so you can delete, change anything you want. Yep. And even, you know, not even just what you currently have digitally. Like I went through and uploaded, I had an old notebook with all of my, you know, when I've had appointments with different practitioners and even like papers on results for certain things, I've just put it all into one area. And so that like pretty much I have my whole health history well, not my whole health history, but like in the last few years that I have it all digital so that I can look at it whenever I need it. Yeah. So I find that quite helpful as well. Yeah. No, that's that's uh, it's really good. Look, it's a work in progress. Like it's not like I think we're using parts of it, but not all of it. And I think, yeah, that's all part of the tweaking process. But it's certainly nice to just have everything in one place. So we're feeling a bit better about that. And um also, like I've been on a bit of a personal journey learning a little bit more about universal energy and the law of attraction. 
um, few people I follow just keep talking about it and it started to really resonate with me and starting to manifest some things uh, in the universe as well. So uh, I've been reading a book by Pamela Grout called E Squared, which is hilarious. She's got all these uh, really practical experiments to test universal energy but the way she writes is in a really entertaining style so that's something i'm learning about and i'm actually going to be working with a an energy coach slash business coach and as somebody that i came across uh with a first call tomorrow so i'm really excited to go on that journey and have a bit more self-discovery and learn something a bit different as well so and i'm excited for you yes (laughs) (laughs) um so those are some personal updates look we have a lot to cover So I think we need to get into this topic, but just to set things up, looking ahead at this, the the sheer amount of detail that we want to get into in this conversation, because in the, in the first part, we really want to focus in on honey and we're going to explain, and if you're listening to this, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? It's just honey. Why, why do lines need to be drawn with this type of product? And I think that's a valid question and we're going to explain why it's important that we put honey in the honey industry under the microscope and the ethical considerations around that so there's a lot to look at in that piece so that's going to be part one and part two which we'll probably release i don't know we haven't decided when we're going to release it probably in two weeks probably in in two weeks uh which is going to be looking at the ethics behind migratory beekeeping uh which directly influences a lot of the crops and and the plants that that vegans and and people eat around the world as an extension of the honey conversation. Both topics are are things that we've covered on the website in articles, so we'll be sure to reference them as we go along this conversation. But we find these topics fascinating. If you listen back to our episode previously, I forgot the episode number, I'll make sure to link to it. But, you know, we're all about trying to challenge our own perceptions and and try to see other people's point of views. And certainly looking at these topics gets you to do that. And it gets you to analyze things and hopefully make a better, more conscious decisions um, when it comes down to ethical choices. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation and um, you're able to join in as well and share your voice and would love to hear from you. You can email us or connect with us on social media to extend the conversation. So I think that's enough of a build up. Tamashi, you are ready to, to talk about honey. Yes, I am. Okay, so where should we start? Well, we have dug up a little poll online that has some interesting feedback from people about if honey is vegan or not, which we might just read out just to get perspective on other vegans and a range of views on this topic. So did you want to read them out? Yeah, so to give you some context, so Kathy Patowski, a friend of ours, another vegan content creator, she's been blogging since like 2007 or something. And way back when she did a poll with her audience around whether they thought honey was vegan or not. And remarkably, this poll is still open today, by the way, so she's still collecting responses. But 20% of the people who identify themselves as vegan I uh, see no, no issue with consuming honey. And uh, if you go back to episode 30, which is the, we talked about the grey areas of veganism, we discussed how there can be a lot of confusion amongst veganism. And that confusion can sometimes get in the way of the cause, which is, you know, to reduce as much exploitation and harm towards animals. Uh, because it ends up looking like there's the definition of veganism is being policed and whatnot. So I can definitely see it from that point of view, but where there's inconsistencies in a movement, it creates a lot of confusion for people trying to understand it and who could mm. potentially join it. And so when I see that 20% of people identify themselves as vegan, see no issue with consuming honey, not to say that that's an accurate measure of Uh, all vegans in the population and what they think but it certainly it shows at least some evidence and it's backed up by a lot of conversations we see amongst vegans that there is a divide on this Mm. and what that means is that aunties and uncles friends and family who know somebody who's vegan one of them has honey one of them doesn't that's really confusing it can actually um the confusion can lead to a lack of credibility for the movement even and like when you go out and eat, you know, like some cafes and restaurants and places that might create a vegan meal might put honey in it because they might have asked a vegan if honey is vegan and therefore 
they might have said, yeah, that's fine. And so they might put it into the dish or, you know, you might order a drink like a chai, for instance, that has honey in it. But you say that you're vegan and that confuses the waiter. So for the next person that comes along and asks, what are your vegan drinks on the menu? They point to the the honey chai. Yes. And then that person's like, well, that's not technically vegan. So the waiter's like, well, I don't, I don't know. And that's where it can kind of confuse things where people might end up consuming honey without actually realizing it. This is a thing, right? And that's the type of impact that it can have. So let's back this up with some comments from people, right? Who are getting into it about this is honey vegan or not debate. Uh, one person said, I am personally offended by individuals who consume honey yet refer to themselves as vegan. Okay. Bit of emotion there. Get personally, <laughs> <Yes>. obviously. <laughs> as humans, we often try to fit ourselves into a box of standards based on what the collective has decided. I know many vegans who don't eat honey simply because they are told it's not vegan, but will stomp on a spider without hesitation should one crawl across their bathroom floor. There you go. So there's it's speaking to that herd mentality and just saying, okay, this is the way it is. Honey is not vegan. Therefore, I'm going to own that as well. And that's what I'm going to police. But it looks like she's pointing out some contradictions there. Uh, another comment. Bees are disappearing at an alarming rate today. And we don't know why. Without these honeybees, the plants we love to eat wouldn't be able to survive either. So I support local honey, which supports maintaining our bee populations and our local agriculture. And I need to say something here. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll explain all of that. I think it's just a very confusing situation for a lot of people. So I'll go as far as to say that people blindly buy honey thinking that they're doing the right thing. Whereas if you knew more about the situation and, and what's going on and the honey and the bee industry, then you might reconsider that yeah supporting that industry yeah i'll leave it at that but we will obviously go through all of that in a minute yeah okay sure okay uh i'll go a few more comments here so this person said it is not vegan i don't know why this is so hard for some people to figure out an animal is an animal is an animal just because it's an insect and not a cuddly piglet doesn't mean it's not an animal sorry sometimes a lifestyle choice is hard but if you consume an animal product you're not vegan deal with it okay again a bit of um bit of emotion behind and passion behind these words uh one more i love honey but i don't eat it very often back when i first became vegan i googled honey to find out what atrocities were being inflicted on the poor bees couldn't find much except that they were being fed sugar water to replace their honey i also read that beekeepers are quite fond of their bees and take very good care of them they the bees are also free to roam wherever and return to their honeycomb. In the spirit of veganism, maybe we could make an exception. Question mark. Maybe we can make an exception. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. So when you hear those responses from people, what? How you, how do you feel about that? Um. I any think surprises? No, I mean there's a lot of misinformation, and like again, before I went diving into this area. I probably had similar views to some of them as well. But it's interesting because some people are like, yeah, just let it slide. Others are like, no way. Yeah. So that tends to be the general consensus from what I can yeah. hear. Yeah, it's quite polarised, isn't it? And there's no acknowledgement of the whole of picture. Yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of people that stand by, you know, use a lot of logic. Yep. You know, like it comes from an animal, therefore it's not vegan. Where other people, I think, are just trying to understand and feel like they're doing the right thing. I think a lot of people who are thinking logically also present some arguments for why, you know, and, and which, will, which will follow up in part two. But, you know, I suppose the very same industry is driving a lot of exploitation and harm for the purpose of pollination, right? So why take issue with honey if you don't take issue with the consumption of some of these foods? And, you know, we will definitely get to the heart of that argument. But I do think that there's logic to that position. You know, when I hear these comments, they're kind of 
on the surface, yeah. right? And yeah. even one person I said agree. that there was a lack of information available yeah. to really understand what the big deal is here. Mm. And um, and I think, you know, we're here to have this conversation to make it, you know, yeah. we feel like there is a big deal because we're talking about a little amazing insect, but that little insect seems has an incredible impact in the world that we live in and how our ecosystem works. So I do think this is a serious issue that needs to have proper assessment so we can make the best possible decision. But that's what I got out of it, surface level type of stuff. All right, so sh- shall we get into the next part? Sounds good. Yes, I think a good place to start talking about this would be to introduce to you what honey actually is and how it's made. I think that's really good groundwork to understand as to then why we do what we do with bees. Okay, so let's start off by what is honey. So honey is like a thick, sugary, sort of brownie, golden liquid most commonly used to sweeten foods. It's used in certain medicines and in drinks predominantly. They're the sort of things that you'll find honey in. And then you've also got sort of, I guess, the the byproduct of honey, which is beeswax. They create beeswax cells to store the honey in and seal it for yep. longevity. And that's used most commonly in things like cosmetics, in candles, food wraps, polish for shoes, crayons, other different types of polishes. But predominantly, I'd say that you'll find it in um, even food, actually. Mm. But you'll find it in cosmetics. Yep. And that's actually something that we struggled with the most when we had our online stores, looking for natural, organic products that did not have beeswax in it, especially when it came to things like lipsticks. Lip balms. Lip balms, even things like eyeliners, all that sort of stuff. So it has, yes, it has honey, but beeswax is also a commercial product that's created by bees. So we've been harvesting honey for a really long time and that dates back to over 9,000 years. And Michael will actually tell you a little story that he came across when he was doing research about a specific... 3,000-year-old pot of honey. Yeah, well, that's it. So, basically, um, some researchers found a 3,000-year-old, well, they estimate it's around 3,000 years old, honey in an Egyptian tomb. And uh, um, because it was a delicacy back then, so uh, as a as a fond farewell, a send-off to uh, what seemed to be a royal Egyptian uh, in the tomb was to place a pot of honey in there. The crazy thing is... It's like an offering to yeah, the gods or something. That's right. But what's crazy about it is that this honey is still perfectly edible 3,000 years later. So, uh, talk, so about, didn't talk about shelf life. <laughs> honey, honey actually never spoils. Yeah. So, honey will never go off. So, if you still have a jar of honey that you've had in the back of your cupboard since you became vegan and you don't want to eat it, you can still give it to someone else to enjoy it. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't go off. So yeah, um, that's really interesting. Fun fact. Yeah. Now, if we zoom forward to today <laughs> from from such times, the honey industry is now valued at over $9.21 billion and is expected to grow at around 8% year in year. So, um, you know, this is a pretty massive commercial industry that generates billions of dollars. And, you know, you mentioned before beeswax as a byproduct. Well, you know, when you look at beekeeping as a whole, there's quite a few different revenue streams and beeswax is one of those products as well that sits in that pie chart. And uh, just because I'm writing a post about it now, which will hopefully be live by the time this podcast goes out, um, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't like your chances yeah, yes. of that, don't promise, but like uh, within a couple of days. Yeah, within a couple of days yeah. and we'll add it to the show notes when it's ready, but the, the beeswax industry represents about half a billion dollars a year. So it is a smaller fraction of but 9 billion, massive. but it, it yeah. is still something in there as well. So um, that's just something to keep in mind. And it's interesting that all this talk about honeybees, right? That's what they're called. Mm. But honeybees make up one species of bee. You want to guess? Well, you know, so <laughs> yeah. I won't ask you to guess. Let me play the game anyway. <laughs> um, so... Drum roll, please. There's <laughs> there's twenty 
thousand different bee species and yet only one makes honey. Wow. And so the bee species, it's actually very diverse, but Mm. we rely on just one of those to produce honey and do a good job at pollination. Yeah, because to to my understanding, that's the only species that is able to, that naturally produces honey, right? Yeah. So, which is fascinating because, yeah, you've got 20,000 bee species. Here in our, in our backyard in Australia, I don't, I, you know, I was pretty embarrassed when I saw this stuff because it's like there's quite a few bee species here. Mm. But outside of a bumblebee, which shouldn't, uh, which shouldn't be here. <laughs> They're so cute. They're very cute. Every time yeah. I see that, because I hadn't. Before we moved to Tasmania, in yeah. Canberra, you did. Well, I don't. I no, don't, never I saw, never a bumblebee. saw them. No. And then when I saw it the first time when we were on the farm, I was like, oh my God, this is the cutest, fluffiest yeah. thing ever. Yeah. Um, so but now every of, time I still see them, I, you know, it makes me smile. Yeah, they're very cute. But outside of the bumblebee and the honeybee, I don't think I have consciously seen what a native bee looks like, which we'll touch on a bit later. You might have. Yeah. But you might have been like not What's processing yeah. what is that you're thinking. I would have thought, is that a wasp or is that, you know, yeah, like, true. yeah, it's just interesting how singular we are and just assume that honeybees are pretty much the only type of bee that we've got around. And perhaps that's probably part of the issue, which we'll touch on yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. So just for the sake of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's just say honeybees are bees because we're not going to really talk about other species of bees. Yeah. But we and also don't want to have any disrespect to them, you know. No. It's heaps. So. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, bees. We're, just, we're lumping you together. Sorry if you're listening to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Hope you're not offended. <laughs> um, yeah. So, let's get on to how bees make honey. Yeah, yeah. Because I think by understanding the process of how um, they make honey, we can start to understand what roles humans play in that intervention yeah um and in that process and it's so fascinating yeah so honey's made when bees go to a flower mm-hmm. and take out so they've got like long tongues mm-hmm. long pointed tongues and they collect propolis water and plant sap so they have two separate stomachs so they put things that they've extracted out of the plant into their honey stomach so they've got a separate stomach and that stomach is called the crop Mm -hmm. from there once they've collected as much as they wanted or as much as they can fit in that nectar is then transported back to the beehive and while they are buzzing along back the nectar starts to get processed by all of the enzymes that they have in, in their belly and that actually starts the process of creating honey so when they return to the hive the bee regurgitates i know it sounds disgusting but they do they regurgitate that nectar into the mouth of another worker bee in the hive and then that bee continues the processing of the nectar and breaking down the water contents so the reason that the enzymes are so important is because the enzymes create that longevity in the honey yeah because the bee's goal here is to keep regurgitating the nectar and the honey from one bee to the next to the next like 50 times over even yeah or with the purpose of breaking down this this content into this thick liquid honey increasing the life um so for the purpose that they can store it and can and eat that later because they're trying to extend the life because they're trying to preserve like yeah. they're masters of preservation yeah <laughs> they're like they don't, we don't have anything on honeys when it comes to you know planning for the future with with their food supply so the water content while they're doing that process goes down to 20 percent from 70 percent. That's, that's amazing so that's probably why it has the longevity because the water content is so low yeah yeah so without the bees actually processing it honey wouldn't exist like you can't just take what they've picked up with their long tongues from the flower Mm. and call that honey because that's not honey yeah so you need that processing to happen for honey to be created from one belly yeah (laughs) from belly to belly to belly to belly to belly to belly yeah um to get that product pretty impressive yeah so once they've gotten it down to about 20 percent i mean it's so smart the way that they like oh yep i need to keep doing this and oh yep you know, like yeah. the fact that they're doing Do it 50 they stop? times. Do you reckon like 
once they're processing and they realize it's at twenty percent, like I'd love to know. It's like, oh, here it is. <laughs> this is the perfect. It's perfect right now. I We're would, ready for storage. I would imagine that it's the taste. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's my logical brain kicking in. And the texture, maybe. In. Yeah, the yeah. texture and the taste of the honey. Yeah. Them going, oh, no, it needs one more processing. Like, it's 1% off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to pass it to Bill to bring it home. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and then at that point, once that's done, once it's down to 20% and it's proper honey, then they seal it in a cell. Yeah. And the honey's ready. That's and right. And the cell is obviously beeswax. Yes. So... And a quick note on that, because I don't think we'll be able to talk about this in a future episode, but the, the beeswax component is also generated from the bee itself. Yes. So... Yeah, I asked you about this this morning because I didn't yeah. know how it was made, so... So, beeswax for bees is the equivalent of, say, plaster, timber, or... Bricks. Or bricks for our... our building materials that were used for property, right? So it is all of the construction material used to create a hive. So it's absolutely critical for them to store all of their eggs, their babies, to store their food for future use. And whilst we generate our own building materials, bees go about it in a slightly different way. They actually generate it themselves. So Which is so amazing. It's, it's, it's insane. So if you look at, we spoke earlier about how honey is produced. So that same honey stomach, that same crop, I believe is what you said it was. The female worker bees huddle together uh, to increase the temperature in the hive. From that, the wax glands in that second stomach will actually create a thickened wax formula in that stomach. From there, it secretes out of their abdomen. They don't throw it up like they do honey but they just squeeze it out of their body so it secretes. But it's really, really hard to make. And actually what happens is once the wax is secreted from the female worker bees, it normally falls like somewhere into the hive. And then the other bees in the hive sort of collect it and be like, oh yeah, this is our resource to build the structures of our hive. So it's like someone coming in with the materials, making the materials. Backing in the truck. (laughs) (laughs) And then like the workers on the site are the ones that are actually putting in. That's exactly right. To generate the wax is much harder than it is to generate honey. So we know how hard it is to make honey. But to produce a pound of wax, bees need to ingest six to eight pounds of honey. Um, So we thought creating honey was hard, but wax is much harder than that. And what's more is that bees need to visit an estimated 30 million flowers to produce this one pound of wax. Wow. So just think about that for a moment. And isn't there something that you were saying about the shape of the honeycomb? They've designed it so that it's the most efficient way possible, like the hexagon shape. Yeah, because they um they can't waste any space or any gaps in the structure. And, you know, when you look at squares or triangles... Uh, even though they fit together perfectly, scientists have found and have done some insane equations to prove this, that the hexagonal structure is the most efficient way to do it. So the bees have worked this out over time and it, it just goes to show how much we can learn from nature to apply to our own practices as well. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's all intentional. It's because they have so little wax to work with. But that's just amazing. They have amazing to, they have to be resourceful. You know, and then yeah. we think that insects are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like they're creating yeah. things that they're biologically wide and in a really and brilliant their bodies in a really can brilliant make way. Everything that they need. Exactly. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. So now that we've covered on beeswax and how honey is made and all of that, let's move on to how honey is harvested from the hive, right? Yeah. So a method that's been used for thousands of years and it still is used today is the most common method which is uh, using a smoking technique. So it might sound pretty brutal, but it's actually something that's proven to distract and confuse the bees because they believe that there's a fire nearby. Mm. So for them, it's this whole thing of going to alert mode. Mm -hmm. So it's like a fight or flight and they make sure that they fill their bellies with honey Mm. so that they have enough whether they need to escape and not come back for a really long time and that they have supplies for themselves and for their loved ones. Yeah. So 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 I'm just thinking like of this scene where there's a fire nearby and then the alarm's ringing. It's yeah. just ringing and it's just like sound the alarm, sound the alarm, yeah, there's yeah. a fire. And then think about 
eating all the pizza you can possibly eat in one sitting and like you cannot eat anymore and then have one more extra large pizza. I mean, you're not going to be able to do anything at that point, right? Yeah, so they get quite lethargic. They get really lethargic, you're lazy, you're rolling around. Meanwhile, you've got these intruders coming into your house Mm. and taking all your stuff. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do because you're too Mm. full. Yeah. You're just screaming on, hey. (laughs) (laughs) where are you going with that but there's not you can't you can't physically move yeah um and that's the equivalent of what's happening here yeah so they get a little bit lethargic and passive and that makes it much easier for the beekeepers to actually move around them and and do what they need to do Mm. so at this stage this is where the beekeeper removes the frames from the hive Mm mm-hmm And there's a few different common approaches to remove the bees from the frames themselves, which is by shaking and brushing the bees off the frame, using escape boards, or there's high-powered blowers as well that they use sometimes, and there's also fume boards. So they're just some of the ways that they actually manage to get rid of the bees to just make it safer and to, you know, kind of say to the bees, okay, this is mine now all sorts of wrong from there the way that they actually process the honey to remove to separate the honey from the beeswax is either by like a specialized extractor mm-hmm. they can do it by gravity or manually crush and strain the combs to harvest the honey yeah so there's a few different ways and it depending on the size of of the if it's a commercial or if it's a home base depending on on how you want to do it so that's how honey is harvested and separated from the honeycomb or well from the beeswax essentially. Yeah. And and I suppose it's like, you know, there's so many different ways to approach that from your backyard keeper to your commercial one who's who's managing like, you know, some of these keepers are managing like 8,000, 10,000 hives. Yeah. Um, some obscene amount of hives. So your approach is going to vary. You know what I mean? So there's one side of the spectrum where, there's uh, very negligent practices where it's just sort of churn and burn and, you know, get the honey as quickly as possible. Who cares how many bees die in this process when they're trying to get them off the tray, right? Yeah. There's that side of the spectrum, but that doesn't represent the whole industry. Then you've got keepers who take a lot of care in the process and ensure that no bees are harmed when extracting. Mm. Um, and, you know, we have to acknowledge that side as well. Yeah. So it just depends. But you look at it like you would any type of farming, right? So if mm. you have like you're using the extreme of commercial, which is then really intense factory farming, and then you've got like your organic... Free range. Free range, yeah. maybe... Um, Hand caught. <laughs> Hand caught? Or for fish, like, for example. Right. Um. <laughs> I was like, why are you catching animals? Yeah. Um, you know, there might be even hobbyists or just have, like, their own little farm for their family. Right. So that's how, you know, you can look at it from from land animals or fish, as you would say, yeah. as well. And so you're spot on. I think the commercial versus indie approach is always very different. Yeah. Normally, normally the commercial side is is far more destructive because of how industrialized it is compared to the indie side, which is taken with a bit more care. So, but um, I must say though that the result is still the same. They right. still they want that honey, no matter how they get it. It's the same as you know, whether or not you have chickens that are laying eggs, you're still gonna get the eggs no matter how the the chickens are looked after. Yeah. You know, all the animals still go to slaughter no matter how well they're looked after. So it's the end result is still what we're sort of looking at, That's which right. doesn't really change in that respect. It just depends on how much the animal or the insect suffers in that process. Yes. So, okay, let's leave the <laughs> negativity <laughs> behind and we'll move on to actually talking about another reason why honey is just so precious. It's such a precious resource for the bees because they make next to nothing. In one bee's lifetime, it makes a quarter of a teaspoon of honey. Yeah. And that is absolutely nothing. Like imagine having a full jar of honey, how many bees, mm. not have died to make it, but like how many bees did it take to make that one full jar of honey? And I think a lot of people take it for granted because they don't realize mm how much that is so like bees have to visit 2000 flowers to just get one teaspoon of honey yeah so it's such a precious resource 
And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, like it goes through a massive, massive process to get it down to a very beautiful, thick, sticky nectar Mm. that without the bees wouldn't exist. That's it. Their perfect product. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is their contribution to the world. But at the same time, you know, it's it's there for them, not for us. Yeah. So now we'll move on to the biggest chunk of the conversation, which is talking about the ethics of beekeeping. So we'll start off by talking about commercial and then verse like local backyard, your smaller sort of scale beekeeping. Now, before we watch this documentary series on Netflix called Rotten, we'll link to it in the show notes. I personally had, and this we watched a couple of years ago at Mm. least now, I personally had no idea what was going on behind the honey industry and how many unethical practices were around this area. I mean, considering that it's worth so much money, it doesn't surprise me at all. But I think the biggest punchline here is that when you're looking at honey as a product, right, and how it's been commercialized and incentivized over the years for people to consume it. So the popularity and the potential health benefits of honey have been promoted and pushed so much but yet over the years I mean I don't know how it is now I believe that it has started to pick up again but there was a time from about 2006 for a few years there that there was a massive decline in bee populations globally Mm. and one thing that was puzzling to me was like well you know production obviously is going down of honey yet the demand is increasing and they're managing to meet those demands. Mm. So something weird is going on here for them to be able to manage to meet the demand. So the only thing after watching this documentary that it makes it super clear is that it the honey's been adulterated. So let's talk about that a little bit now. Adulterated honey essentially is honey that's been tampered with, that it has had other things added to it, that it's been mixed in with other honeys and like mixing honeys from different hives in different areas. That's not that big of a deal Mm. sort of because a lot of the time they want to like round out the flavor and the flavor profile of the honey so that it can get to as close as possible to what their consumers would normally get Um, because it's actually probably quite tricky to control where the bees are going. Obviously, if you're getting them to go around different places, yes, you have a little bit more control. But in saying that, they started adding things into it, like rice malt syrup was one of the main ones that they were sort of talking about and other things that I can't recall now off the top of my head, but they would use other different um, syrups, uh, like high fructose corn syrup, for instance, as well, because that's a cheap product. Mm -hmm. It's the same color. It can have the same sort of stickiness. Like you you wouldn't be able to tell, right? Right. But because a lot of the time they were finding that when this was happening, people were messing with the honey. So they started lab testing it as well. I think that they were probably already testing it just to make sure that it was safe for human consumption and that there wasn't too much antibiotics or anything in the actual honey, but they were testing it and finding out all of these things that weren't right. And so the industry worked out a way to cheat the system and they started using rice malt syrup, which in a lab test, you couldn't pick it up. It didn't come through. So that's how they were getting that through the door. So their test wasn't able to distinguish between rice malt syrup yeah, and, it just looked and, like and honey. honey. Yep. Yeah. And then there was also things like, as I mentioned, antibiotics, but they had antibiotics in the honey and some were actually illegal and even deadly. So this whole idea of what was happening just to a simple product like honey that's been promoted to be such a health product is an absolute joke, mm. you know. I don't want to get into too much detail on that side of things. But but, but I think it's it's a good, it's a good thing to call out because, you know, This comes down to a bit of, I suppose, misinformation, misleading consumers at the point of purchase. So, got bees working so hard to create this perfect product for themselves, then we take it and then promote it as a pure, raw product when really it's far from that. Yeah. Um, It's it's just a fraction of it is actually what you're paying for and the rest of it is just 
stuff added to the formula. Mm. And again, I believe that these would be like the high, the bigger commercial yes. ones that are, you know, kind of shipped around all over the world or even locally that you'd probably most likely find in supermarkets or in products themselves like cereals and, yeah, um, you know, sometimes I think even teas have like honey flavoring or whatever in yep. them as well. I mean, I, that's probably got nothing to do with honey, but they synthetically make it taste like honey. So, back in 2006, there were some issues. As I mentioned, there was a decline in bees, but an increase in production, apparent increase in production of honey. The reason that there was a decline in, in bees was because there was a thing called CCD, which is colony collapse disorder. So, this was happening for a little bit before they actually realized or were managing to catch on to the fact that it was happening globally and what it actually was coming from. And this was happening because of uh, pesticide sprays on crops. So as it's something that we're going to talk about in the next episode, when you have migratory bees going around different places to monocrops, a lot of the time these uh, monocrops are sprayed. And even if they're not monocrops, a lot of commercial crops are sprayed to prevent, you know, disease or fungus or pests or anything of that nature so the bees were actually getting sick from these pesticides and there's specific ones that are now banned uh, for use because they were killing off the bees in particular I'm sure that they're killing off lots of other bugs but because there's a monetary incentive here for bees for the honey and for pollination they had to work out what was going on so the way that they were dying was because the pesticides were weakening their immune systems. It created issues with the digestive system and it slowly started to harm their brain. So the bees were very disoriented. They didn't know, you know, they started to feel a little bit woozy. They didn't know what was going on. And if a bee doesn't return to its hive within 24 hours, it essentially, like, it's, it dies. Mm. It's very de- codependent on its colony. So that's something to keep in mind and a lot of the time you'd come back in the morning and the whole hive would be empty or dead depending if they would come back Right. Um, because over time it would start to mess with their internal organs and all of that sort of stuff. So it would be a slow and painful death which I can imagine would be a horrible thing to experience. Yes. Another thing to note when we're, when, since we're talking about the ethics of commercial beekeeping is that One thing that came to me, I actually originally wrote this article back in 2019. Mm -hmm. And one thing that after I wrote the whole article, I started thinking, okay, like I'm still not quite getting the punchline of why bees are such a big issue. But then I started thinking, okay, so all of these beekeepers are introducing only one species of bees, right? Mm. And... Those honeybees out of 20,000 bee population and obviously other insects in that area, they're taking food away from everybody else. So they're literally pushing out because they come in in bigger groups. You know, they've got probably stronger immune systems in that sense because they're bred to produce. Mm. So these bees would push out the native and local bees and insects that would take their food away from them. Mm. So I think that this is where it all all started unraveling for me was like, right, so commercial and local and anybody that wants to produce a hive, it's really important to keep that in mind. Mm. And, you know, you want to support a specific industry and you think you're doing the right thing, but without too much information or knowledge, you're actually doing it more harm than good. So just a couple of other little things. Well, they're not very little, but just to drive this point home of some of the practices that happen when we're talking about commercial beekeeping before we move on to your backyard type of beekeeping is that there are certain practices that happen. Well, we're specifically going to be talking about the queen bee. So every hive needs one queen bee. And queen bees are artificially inseminated most of the time just to make it a more efficient and effective way of reproducing. 
And a lot of the time they also clip their wings if they're already doing that because they don't want the queen flying off. And they also, depending on, I can't remember how long they keep the queen bee around until they actually replace her. So that's just something to also keep in mind. But as I mentioned earlier, they do give them antibiotics mm-hmm. if you know, the whole hive is unwell, which can be dangerous again for people that consume the honey, but it's obviously not the best thing for the bees themselves. And, you know, out in the wild, bees don't need that type of treatment because mm. it's it's a natural thing that happens. So when you start industrializing things and start cramming them into smaller spaces or start pushing them to do certain things that they shouldn't naturally be doing, of course, you're going to have issues and one last thing that I wanted to mention is that as we, I think we talked about it earlier, like the bees collect honey for the winter. It's like their winter stores. So it's their food for overwinter. That's why they create the frames and the, the beeswax filled with honey so that they can have food to, to survive for them and their babies um, over winter time. But it's actually cheaper for I mean, this is so wrong, but it's actually cheaper for a beekeeper to burn and kill all of its bees over the winter period because there's too much upkeep that they need to do to make sure that they're looked after well and because there's nothing really to pollinate for honeybees, especially on a commercial scale. In winter, they can sometimes just kill them off and then start a new colony when it starts to warm up and when plants start to blossom again. But now I'll get Michael (laughs) to take over the backyard beekeeping from here. Yeah, so I I think it's really interesting in hearing you explain the commercial industry and, you know, I I think it becomes evidently clear that that's not, not an ideal industry to support. Yeah. One there's questions about the product quality that Mm. you're buying. Two, uh, the highly industrialized cycle means that it's it's highly likely there's going to be unethical practices involved. And just the, I don't know, it just screams slavery to me with all these bees, you know. And, And so that's really confronting. So hopefully if you're listening to this, when I talk now about local beekeeping, I'll say this up front. You know, like if you if you choose to consume honey, just like anything else, it's always best to support your local suppliers and get to know them and and and, and build trust and understand what their practice is. So you've got a level of transparency. You know what you're buying and what you're supporting. But to continue on with that, so Marsha initially wrote this post uh, back in 2019, and we did a big update earlier this year, and. Um, and in, in preparation for that, to remain as objective as possible, we wanted to put ourselves in the shoes of local beekeepers, right? Because this is what we hear time and time again, and not only through other vegans, but from beekeepers themselves. It's people who are really uh, proud of this this hobby and the intent behind it and, and the, the effort that goes into that to serve their communities, to serve the environment. So I actually went in and borrowed a book called Backyard Bees, A Guide for the Beginner Beekeeper by Doug Purdy. Um, in addition to learning a lot in online communities and forums from local beekeepers, asking each other questions. Like, I just really wanted to understand if I was somebody who wanted to pick up this hobby, what's the process, what's involved? And it's really clear that many of these local beekeepers, if not all that I saw, were incredibly passionate knowledgeable and care deeply about their bees and they're very much about sharing the knowledge with other beekeepers encouraging people to be involved there's boards there's communities there's um, all these different things that you can participate in like any hobby there's almost like a pet-like relationship between keepers and their bees and unlike commercial processes uh, local beekeepers don't use any harmful chemicals artificial sweeteners or antibiotics and outside of acquiring a new hive, either through a wild swarm, which, uh, which <laughs> if you're game, if you're game enough to do that, but and is, but do you get wild wild swarms of honeybees? Uh, you do in some areas. Okay. It's very rare, and right. normally you need to call the local uh, beekeepers association or whatever to get like a somebody who's actually really skilled to to remove it, to remove it, it. yeah, right. and deal with it. So that that can still happen. You can buy a new bee package from your local beekeepers association or you can buy it secondhand from a, a keeper that you may know as well. 
So while local beekeeping is not as drastic as commercial beekeeping, there are still some practices that are delicate, right, that we need to be mindful of from preventing injuries and any harm to the bees. So the first variable is integrating the hive into a new environment. When you're first getting a new hive, um, whether it's from a swarm or from splitting a hive or secondhand or where, wherever your source is, um, there's always a chance of injuries and death in the process, especially for new beekeepers, like if you're very novice to this and, and how you handle that and integrate that into your, into your backyard or into your environment. You may need to go through introducing a new queen into the hive, depending on what goes down and, and how the queen is treated, if, if she gets ill or whatever. And that can be a very delicate process and, and very intricate. And if that's stuffed up, then that could mean more casualties for the hive as well. And the third variable, which Marsha's already touched on, is the extraction of honey itself. So while most local beekeepers will tell you that they never cause any harm, um, like any industry, there's always going to be your outliers, people who are not as patient, don't follow uh, all the steps they know they should or rush the process, and that can lead to some death of bees as well. So those are some things to consider. And, and I suppose if you're a natural beekeeper, there are some things that you might argue for. And when I was reading this book and and seeing the passion of this community, I know these claims ring true for a lot of people out there. And I want to acknowledge that. So some some points would be that bees are uh, an incredibly effective pollinator. Just to get back to the basics of pollination, pollination is basically the equivalent to plants having sex, right? Because they can't mate with each other directly. They're relying on pollinators. So bees, bats, butterflies, flies. The wind. The wind. <laughs> um, hummingbirds. Like there's lots of different pollinators out there, right? So they're, the, the flowers are dependent on these pollinators to transfer the pollen from from a male plant to a female plant, okay? And it doesn't actually happen through any of these pollinators directly consuming the pollen. In, in the case of a bee, um, the bee has a very furry body. And so when they're buzzing around and sucking out all of the nectar and all of the stuff inside the plant, um, the pollen is actually going on it just the, gets stuck. It gets to stuck. Their it gets stuck to their bodies, right? Yeah. So by the time the bee goes to the next plant and gets collects nectar, that same pollen is being transferred to the next plant just yeah, from so coming out dust, of their body. Yeah, because yeah, they're flying, they're flapping their wings, and the pollen is d- distributing. So that's how it's transferred through bees. Um, but because bees is like once they find or a really good source, yeah, plant. well, any yeah. any pollinator. Yeah. But once a bee in particular finds a crop or plant that they're really happy with the sort food source. They'll keep aggressively going back until they fill up that that second stomach we're talking about. Like they'll work that whole area until they get all the nectar they possibly can, which is beneficial for a lot of these plants because normally the the gender difference or the the plants that need to mate, if you like, are all in that same area. Um, so that's what's really powerful about these these honeybees. They're very hard workers and they work the same area of plants. For that same reason, bees are really critical for crop production. Um, and when they pollinate, they increase yields by as much as 60%, which is pretty remarkable. Native bees, like the, I'm going to stuff up the, the, how I pronounce this, this name, like the tetragonola, tetragonula in Australia, have a minimal foraging range of 800 metres, which is the equivalent to 875 yards. Compare that to the radius of 3.2 kilometres or two miles from a honeybee. So... When you look at the performance or, you know, the range in which some native bees can perform compared to the European honeybee, European honeybee has a much more broader distance that it can cover in its pollination as well. And of course, pure quality honey has, you know, been pushed a lot in the media about the health benefits, including antioxidant effects, uh, antifungal properties and ability to heal wounds, soothe sore throats and improve digestion. Uh, which are things that we've all come to accept and appreciate of honey. So there's no denying those benefits, but I think the ethical case, even at a natural backyard, local level for beekeeping, is one, the biodiversity and pollination, and two, is this idea that consuming honey, and same argument could be made for beeswax as well, is it essential? Is it necessary? So back to fishing, back to even meat in some areas, back to previous 
generations in our history as humans. Consuming animal products was once a necessity. It still is to some very small parts of the world, rural areas, who need to fish for sustenance, for example. They need to eat seafood for sustenance. When we talk about honey, when we talk about beeswax, is this essential? Is this necessary? Because you've got these resources, which, as we've explained through the process of making honey, are for the bees fundamentally. It is for them, for the future. It's Think of honey as food in the pantry for bees, right? Think of beeswax as building material for their hives. Yet these are things that we have managed to extract. Not only that, we are breeding these species of bees so we can extract more of their, their resources. So backyard beekeepers, whilst it's an admirable service in theory, is a service that is has some sort of trade-off in benefit as well, right? There is a way forward to be a backyard beekeeper. Marsha and I could become backyard beekeepers but decide not to harvest any honey. Well, I wouldn't even say that we'd be beekeepers. We're not keeping bees. That's interesting, yes. We're, you know, helping the local population diversity of native bees find a home. Yes, but even then, we would rather do other things, which we'll explain later on, to help with that pollination issue, right? But if we were to be to get a hive, we, you know, we could still make the decision to not extract any of the resources out of that hive. But because there is some sort of benefit, that there is a little bit of an incentive to do so, which then that makes an ethical argument for, well, is it is that ethical? Is it ethical for us to go into that relationship? Well, a lot of beekeepers would also argue that there's too much honey for the bees, so therefore you need to take some. They don't need as much honey to survive and to thrive as you may think, therefore it's okay for me to take some of that honey from them. Yeah, you know? and what and what's the line? What's the ethical yeah. consent there? Because the same argument can be made for backyard chickens. So, you know... Uh, one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. Okay, well, where, where's the line in that consent? Okay, how much milk do you take from a dairy cow? Mm. That's for their calf. What's the ethical line there? If it's if we can't answer that question, if we can't communicate with these animals, then why make the assumptions? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If 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 there's if it's not essential to ask those questions, mm. and I think that's where it gets very grey. And I understand it can be very finicky, but to keep things simple, by omitting these from our consumption habits is far easier than figuring out what that line is. Because ultimately, these resources were not created or uh, specifically for us. You know, they have use cases in that animal's cycle, that animal's life cycle. It's just that we intervene and then we justify ways to continue intervening. So, I mean, we've touched on, I suppose, this this where, where we draw the ethical line with, with taking resources away from bees and the ethical reason for why many vegans choose not to consume honey. But then when we talk about this pollination issue, it's really interesting to look at some of the numbers here because as it, as it stands at the moment, and, and these are rough figures... When we look at all of the pollinators and, and their impact on crops and plants around the world, we've got 39% are honeybees, 38% are other bees, and then 23% are non-bees, including what we talked about before, um, bats, butterflies, hummingbirds, and flies. But as we bring in and breed more honeybees and hives into existence, those numbers are going to continuously uh, skew towards honeybees dominating other bees and other pollinators. Um, again, speaking to that diversity issue. But what's really interesting is that different pollinators tend to be good at pollinating different types of crops and flowers. So, for example, uh, native bees perform 90% of watermelon pollination. So they also return twice as many blueberries uh, yields compared to honeybees. So native bees are actually far more effective at pollinating watermelons and blueberries than honeybees. Honeybees are not even big enough to successfully pollinate tomatoes. So we need the bigger bumblebees to get the job done. But at the same time, 96% of the bumblebee population has died off. So 
again, there could be many reasons for that, but you know, one contributing factor could be expediting the the growth and the breeding of one type of bee species. And to do this exercise, I think it's important for you to, you know, even open up a browser, you know, not now, obviously, whatever you're doing and listen to this podcast, please, please be safe. But when you get an opportunity, open up Google and type in native bees in and then insert your regional country and just see the images that come up in the search results to get an idea of what these bees look like in your area that you can start to look out for and and really put into perspective just what it may have used to look like in terms of diversity before it was dominated by one type of species. So I think when it comes down to it, like even the most honest backyard beekeepers helping grow the monopoly on honeybees have on plants to pollinate in a specific area. So that is something to look out for when we say that by buying more honey, more raw honey, more natural honey, we're supporting a good cause. And don't get me wrong, it's definitely some benefits to having more pollinators in the areas, but it's also just as important to have the right pollinators pollinating the right plants and having a good mix of them doing the work together in that exchange with flowers. So that's all I wanted to say in that area because I think it is it is something that is really confusing, right? Because as we mentioned earlier, you have 20% of vegans who have no problem consuming honey because they're actually thinking... It's, it's a positive it's thing. That it's, right. it's actually, yeah. th- this conversation is good because it's, we all have the same intent here. We're actually we're all trying to do the right thing. We want the right thing for the bees. We want the right thing for crops. But I think as we look deeper into this, it's more, more than just humans taking resources away from a bee. It's also about us contributing to the dismantling of an ecosystem. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And and I think that's an important conversation that we should all be having. Well, if you think about it, there's certain parts of the world where you've got native animals that aren't insects where you might think that one of them is a pest, therefore you might take out that species and then other animals starve to death because that was their main food supply. Yep. When it comes down to it, it's just making sure that we're preserving the natural ecosystem wherever we are. And making sure that the diversity doesn't die off. Like 96% of bumblebees are dying. Yeah. And again, we're not sure why that is, but we would imagine that some of it would have to do with the fact that honeybees are driving them out. Yeah. And so when you think about it that way, it's so skewered that we're trying to support local beekeepers and doing all of these things, but yet they're contributing to the problem. Yeah. And it, and isn't it sad that we're only celebrating one species? Mm. Like you, you grow up in school learning primarily about one type of bee. Yeah. Um, and I know it's hard for anyone to sit down and learn about so many different types of bees, but I, I just think it's it's we interesting. We learn about all different types of animals. This is what I'm saying, right? Yeah. We're just we're we're just so heavily skewed towards this one type of bee because of. Has what to, it gives there's us. an agenda behind that yeah. there's there's a there's a benefit there's a commercial incentive there's a nine billion dollar incentive to push that message and i think that's what's unethical to me about this situation mm. so i think to round up this podcast episode we just wanted to talk about some of the ways that you can avoid supporting this industry and what you can do to help to make sure that the biodiversity of different pollinators continues to thrive or to not decline any further. So things like supporting local farmers that don't grow monocrops, that try and plant a variety of different crops, different flowers to uh, attract more different types of insects to their gardens and buy organic because they're not sprayed with pesticides again that are actually killing a lot of the insects not just honeybees they spray the crop so that it actually either kills the insects so that they don't eat their crop or to protect them from getting any bugs on them so that's one of them and what we talked about before is you know like if we were going to do something this would probably be the main thing is to plant bee and pollinator friendly gardens so what I've actually done is rather than going veggies which I seem to be struggling with where we're living 
Um, possums seem to be eating everything, which is fine. I'm happy to share with them. But one, you know, when it gets to a point where you literally can't grow some parsley just because as soon as it starts to be healthy enough for it to be harvested, it's gone overnight. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose we could shelter it, but... Yeah, yeah. but like, I don't know. I feel, I don't know. I don't feel right about that. So, so anyway, so we've gone and planted a lot of different bulbs for the spring. So they're already in the soil to have flowers over the over the spring and summer months so that we can attract different types of pollinators and different types of insects to enjoy the flowers and we can enjoy the flowers ourselves as well in that process. Yep. So, I mean, again, go for it if you want to grow your own food, but for us, that's kind of where we're at. I've kind, yeah. of, <laughs> I've kind of been a bit discouraged by it. But isn't that, area. you know, if you have the climate to do so, isn't that a really positive influence? You know, like we, we talk about... Um, incentives for people to have hives in their backyards. Yeah. Why not go and find some local native plants Yeah. and, and plant them? You know, mm. that's that's an action that many of us can take, particularly if you listen to this podcast and that can have a very p- positive influence in your area. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing that you can do is create a, a beehive that is for native bees. I've seen in community gardens when we lived in Canberra, where they created like they call them bee hotels so that you can create a little sanctuary for the bees to come and set up home there yep. and attract them to, to hang around and to mate to, to increase their population that way as well. So, and it goes without saying, you know, try and avoid using harmful sprays on your plants because that'll definitely do harm to the native well to any of them really yeah to any of the pollinators so yeah yeah. so as well as supplying homes for the insects you want to make sure that you provide them with water as well especially Mm. over those really long hot days in summer where they you know they need water just as much as we do to to enjoy and the last point that we wanted to make is of course (laughs) um help the bees by going vegan so One of the main issues with feeding livestock is that you need to grow a lot of monocrops. So a lot of the time you'll find that all animals that are fed to be slaughtered for us to consume are normally fed either corn, soy or wheat. And so those monocrops are actually causing a lot of issues and it's one of the main reasons as to why the Amazon rainforest is being cleared as well as for the livestock to to graze there and to live there but it's also to um, to grow monocrops so just keep that in mind and i think that last point you made about clearing out vast amounts of land to grow more monocrops to feed animals is a really good place for us to end this episode and (laughs) think about part two which is really going into a far more detail around this monoculture and what many people perceive as a contradiction in veganism you know when we're harping on so much about honey and then now the very same industry is responsible for a lot of exploitation to bees to produce a lot of the crops that we enjoy as plant-based eaters i understand how that can create a lot of confusion and that is something that we want to go into in the next episode so i think this is a good place to to wrap it up if you've made it this far thank you for hanging in Um, i hope you have got some good information out of this and at least you know if you are consuming honey um, to at least try and support the local alternatives if it's available in your area or even better see if you can play a role in actually helping the diversity of pollination in your area because you know the environment and the animals will thank you for it so um that's it anything else you want to add before we wrap up no i think that's a good place to to finish it off cool so again this is episode 62 which you can get access to the show notes and some links and resources and of course the article we write on this over at theminimalistvegan.com slash zero six two that's it thank you for tuning in as always here's to living with less stuff and more compassion till next time bye bye